Good morning. There is one thing that stands in the way of God's judgment. Only one thing, and it's God's grace. God's grace and mercy, his compassion and his love, stands in the way of judgment. Not forever. But the reason we're not experiencing judgment in our lives is God's grace. The reason that Noah and his family were spared through the flood was God's grace. God's favor was upon them. And it's not that Noah was perfect, and it's certainly not that his family was perfect, but their hearts were perfect towards God. Their hearts were right towards God. And because of that, though they were sinners like all of us, they were spared a calamity that came upon the whole earth. So today, you may be looking at our world, so many of us are looking at our world and our culture and thinking, God, it's time for you to bring judgment. I know I feel that way. But at the same time, God brings judgment in his time, and the only thing that stands in the way of that judgment coming upon our world today is God's grace. Let's pray. Lord Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and as we look today at the account of the flood, may we understand in our hearts that that was your judgment that came after many, many, many years of your grace being poured out opportunities for repentance, opportunities for change. But there came a point where your judgment came, and it was only after your grace had been given completely. Oh, Lord God, even then you showed your grace to Noah, like you showed your grace to Lot in Sodom and the cities of the plains. You show your grace to us, and even those that put you, your son, in a place of suffering on the cross were shown grace and mercy when he said, Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. And we are recipients of your grace today, your mercy, your love, because you're good, you're long-suffering, and you wouldn't have any perish, but that all should come to repentance. Lord, we thank you for your grace and your mercy in Jesus' name. Amen. I know what you're thinking. Leave it to Pastor Tim to find God's grace even in judgment. But listen, I see God's grace in everything, especially his judgment, especially that judgment isn't poured out immediately upon us when we sin or on the world when we're deserving of it. Clearly, our world should be destroyed yesterday for the judgment of sin, and yet God is staying his hand for his purposes by his grace. And so now we enter a section of the book of Genesis in Genesis chapter 6, verse 9, second half of verse 9. We have here what's called the generations of the sons of Noah. We've already looked at Noah's account, the generations of Noah. But now we look at the generations of the sons of Noah. And what's being recorded here is being recorded collectively by the three sons of Noah so that we'll understand what happened during the flood. I find it interesting that Noah recorded what happened before the flood, but his sons recorded the flood and the things leading up to it. It doesn't surprise me, but what the patriarchs would do is they would record the history of their life and their lifetime, pass it on to the next recorder of history, and so on and so forth, until ultimately these recordings, these tablets, were passed on to Moses, who incorporated all of these historical accounts written by the eyewitnesses that experienced them, and he compiled it and presented it to us as the book of Genesis. So you've probably noticed in the book of Genesis there are 
separate accounts and they seem to overlap at times. And that's because it is really a compilation of histories, not just one history, histories not written by one person looking back, but compiled by someone looking back and capturing or recording all of the individual histories of eyewitnesses. And that's why the book of Genesis is, an, is the most uh, reliable source, if not the only reliable source, of history in an area of time we call prehistoric. It's not prehistoric. We have history from the beginning of creation that's recorded in a way that we can have confidence in all of the details. So here we see that God chose to show his grace to Noah and his family. It starts in verse 9, latter part of verse 9. Noah was a righteous man, we learn there in Genesis 6, verse 9. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the peoples of, people of his time. And he walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. In this beginning verse... Yes, God chose to show grace and favor to Noah and his family, but there was a reason. I think the single most important prerequisite for receiving God's grace is receiving God's grace. A lot of times we look at, it, we, at judgment and we say, well, God is bringing judgment. Why? Well, because his, his grace is being rejected. If you want to receive God's grace today, you need only receive God's grace and when you reject that grace and judgment comes upon you, can you really blame God? You've rejected Christ, or in this case, rejected God. And so the flood comes upon those that rejected God. Just like hell is the destination, ultimately, of all those that reject Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. When the gospel is presented and we push it away, God is gracious for a time. But ultimately, when his grace is rejected, judgment comes. Now, Noah wasn't sinless. I want to be clear about this. He wasn't a perfect man. He may not have even been a great man. What we do know is he was a righteous man. And that's because he was a righteous man before God. He respected God. He worshiped God. He loved God. He knew God. And that grace was poured out upon this man for those reasons. He had not surrendered himself to his sinful nature like the culture around him. In fact, we know that he spoke out against the extreme wickedness of his day. Again, not perfect, but willing to speak out. For in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, we know that God did not uh, spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, it says, a preacher of righteousness and seven others. And so it's important to see that God protected Noah. He, him and his family. Now, one of the other things that we talked about this last week is his actual DNA, his actual genetic code, had not been compromised through the interbreeding that was taking place in, our, in Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. We talked about that last week, and there was this situation where angels were, were interbreeding with mankind, and so a lot of humanity at that point wasn't fully human anymore. And so that his genetic code had not been compromised through this interbreeding. He had not replaced God, but rather he and his sons walked with God. And that allows us to receive God's grace and protection, walking with God, not being perfect. It says he was blameless. That doesn't mean perfect. We're called to be blameless. That is, no one can accuse you of rejecting God or accuse you of defying God 
or accuse you of sinning against God because you haven't, not because you haven't sinned, but you have given your heart to God. You're blameless because of God's righteousness, not because of your righteousness. I want to clarify. And so God determined to save mankind and to do it through one righteous family. Now imagine, if you will, God spared this righteous family, destroyed the world, as we'll see, but spared this one righteous family. How many righteous families are represented here today? In this one church, on this one street, in this one city, in this one state, in this one country, in this one hemisphere, on this earth. There are many, not because they're perfect. Every parent here will be the first to tell you their children aren't perfect. But they're a righteous family upright before God because they are blameless because Christ has made them so. So think about it now. I I think we are all kind of waiting for the other shoe to drop and judgment to come upon at least our culture, at least our nature. And yet so many people that we know are righteous before God. See, I don't believe that God's judgment is going to come upon this nation until the nation is much further gone. But that's just what I feel. However, you might say, well, if God's judgment is to come, doesn't he have to remove the righteous? He will not, as he told Abraham, judge the righteous with the wicked. And that's true. And if you remember, the judgment that came upon the, through the flood, in that, Noah was protected. The judgment that came upon Sodom, in that, Lot was removed. Lot and his, his family were removed. And it's true that I believe in this day and age, when judgment comes, we will not experience the judgment of God. That's not to say we won't suffer. It's not to say we won't go through difficult times or be persecuted. Clearly, those things have always happened. But never once has a child of God been judged by God if they're in Jesus Christ. It's never happened and never will because the judgment of God came upon him so that we might stand in his grace upright before his throne. Amen? Let's be clear on that. Okay, so in verses 11 through 13, we read that now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. And so God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them, and I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So judgment is about to come. God has announced it. Oh, there would still be many years, but judgment was coming. It was clear. It had been prophesied that in the year that Methuselah died, judgment would come. His name means his death shall bring. So it was the idea his death shall bring judgment. People were waiting for it. They understood that, but people didn't care. At a certain point, the world had so rejected God and his ways, they simply did not care. Mankind had become thoroughly corrupt in every way. His thoughts, the inclinations of his heart, we were told in last week's study, the inclination, every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. Now, as bad as things are, that's, we're not there. Not today, we're not there. It, we're getting there. Don't get me wrong. I mean, that, the, the earth is filled with violence but not to the extent that it was at this time. The fallen nature of mankind has had wreaked havoc on the earth the way it has wreaked havoc on the earth today, but not to the same degree. We are not there yet. This was partly, though, due to man's complete surrender to his sinful nature. Complete surrender. There's still a struggle. 
in today's world between good and evil, between right and wrong. It seems sometimes as if we're losing, but God is always victorious. Amen. Remember, God is in control. You need to understand that. When the time comes for judgment, there won't be one righteous person that says, God, you're being a little too heavy handed. Uh, I think you're bringing judgment too soon. God can be trusted to bring his judgment in his time. Now, there was this situation we talked about, the events of Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. And if you weren't with us, you can certainly listen online, uh, read the chapter or a previous part of this chapter, and understand that all of those events that we studied last week significantly increased the wickedness of mankind at this time in man's history. Man had replaced God with the unholy offspring of men and angels. And they were worshiping them the way that is recorded by mythology in the Greek and Roman myths. They were worshiping demigods. They were worshiping those who were the offspring of angels and men. They had replaced God in much the same way that today many have replaced God with things, uh, with causes, with others. I was watching the preview of a rather upsetting, uh, I guess it was on Netflix, but a rather upsetting movie or, or, or documentary that's just been released documenting the mother of God cult. And, and I'm watching this because it was on the front of something else I was watching. And, and it was very clear to me as they recorded this person is completely out of their mind. And yet what's more disturbing than someone proclaiming to be God as a human being is people following that person as God. And, and it really shook me up when I saw the preview. I said, oh my goodness. But of course, that's where we are in our culture today. People are looking to replace God with anyone who will tell them they can do whatever it is they want to do. So God had decided to destroy the entire human race and the earth itself. And before we even go any further, you may be thinking, you mean Pastor Tim actually believes the book of Genesis? He actually believes that the creation was as recorded by God in Genesis 1 and 2? Yes, I do. He actually believes that there was a global flood, a worldwide flood. Yes, I do. And I'm going to show you why that is not a scientific problem. That is not an impossibility. In fact, it is a logical explanation of the world in which we live. See, life on earth had to be reduced to an uncorrupted and uninfected sample in order for mankind to survive. Noah's father Lamech and his grandfather Methuselah were still alive while he was building the ark. Now, they may have been corrupted by the world around them. They may not have. We don't know. Lamech died five years before the year of the flood, and Methuselah died in the same year as the flood, and I dare say it is even possible that he died in the flood. I suspect he didn't. I I believe he probably died, and then the flood came, but he may have even died in the flood. There's no way of knowing if Noah's ancestors had even been fully corrupted. We're not told, but we are told at least in a generic way, in a broad way, that the whole earth had been corrupted. And all you could say is that Noah's family was not. So whether that included those immediate ancestors or not, we don't know. But that's how bad things were. Of course, Noah's siblings and their families were clearly ungodly. They perished in the flood. And I believe Noah had other sons and daughters. I do not believe he just had three. These are the three that are mentioned because they were with him and went on the ark. Uh, His other sons and daughters, if he had them, were ungodly. They perished in the flood. So that's where we're at. That's where humanity has gotten to. So God chose Noah and his family to, if I can use a technical term, reboot the entire human race. Sometimes things get so bad, 
when you're working on a tablet or a laptop or a computer, nothing's running properly, right? You, and then if you do call a help desk, which I like to call the no help desk, they're gonna, what are they going to do? The very first thing they're going to tell you to do is always the same. Reboot, shut down, and start again. Because what that does for you non-technical people is it clears the memory, the RAM memory. It reboots all of the uh, registry programs, all of the things that make the computer work properly. And a lot of times, that solves the problem. In this case, you needed to reboot the entire human race. Actually, not just the human race, all life on planet Earth. At least all animal life, not marine life, but all the land-based animals and human beings. So God chose to save Noah and his family, and that's recorded for us in verses 14 through 16. And so we read, God said, So make yourself an ark or a box of cypress wood. Make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you are to build it. The ark is to be 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high. Make a roof for it and finish the ark to within 18 inches of the top. Put a door in the side of the ark and make lower, middle, and upper decks. So that's the command that he receives at this time to build a box. So many people have looked at this and you know, we see the ark and we imagine something and, and there have been those who've actually built this. I know that there's the ark encounter and, and a number of people I know have been there and they've really said it's fabulous, it's wonderful. I'd love to see it at some point in my life. Uh, there are others that have taken the time to, to build a replica of the ark and if you build it like a ship it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It really is a box and when you think about it that's what the word means. Ark means box. He was to coat the ark with a covering of pitch in order to waterproof it. Because you see, God is commanding Noah to build an ark sufficient to save mankind and all animal life on the land. The word for ark, also used to describe the box in which Moses floated on the Nile. It's the same word. The word for pitch that's used to waterproof the ark describes a covering. The word really means a covering, and it is similar to the word for atonement. The word for atonement means to cover sin. So the ark is, and we'll see this, a beautiful picture of salvation through Jesus Christ. Salvation comes through an ark made of wood covered in pitch. And those words, those very words, point toward the idea of Christ dying on the cross for our sins to cover our sins, actually do away with our sins, and bring atonement into our lives. The ark is actually an incredibly well-designed floating barge. I remember when I was a kid growing up here in East Rutherford. I used to love it when we were on our way to the supermarket. And there weren't as many supermarkets in our area back then, so we had to cross the river. And uh, when we did cross the river, uh, many times the bridges over here on the Passaic River, they would open. Some of them went uh, sideways, some of them lifted up. But they've all since been redone, and none of those bridges open anymore. But there used to be an incredible uh, industry in Patterson, the Botany Mills, and in Passaic, and, and all of those barges and shipping uh, containers would be moved from Patterson and Passaic down the Passaic River, which had been dredged pretty well at the time. And you would sometimes be on your way to the supermarket, and the bridge would be open, and you just have to wait. It may have been an, an inconvenience to my parents, but we as kids love that. You know how kids love things like garbage trucks and trains and, 
you know, freight trains. We used to have freight trains that came through East Rutherford. We had railroad tracks there. And I loved it when all of a sudden a freight train would go by and we had to sit there for five minutes and we would count the number of different colored trucks or, or, or train cars. And, it, it, you know, that's exciting to a child, not so exciting for us. The point is, a barge is an incredible, incredibly well-built transportation vehicle in order to transfer goods or individuals. And so watching those barges as a kid go up and down the river, they don't have a really large keel, they're a little bit wider, and uh, so they would come up and down this river over here, though they don't anymore. So I understand when you build a barge, it's really not designed to go very fast. It's basically just designed to stay afloat. In fact, the length to width ratio, which is 1 to 6 or 6 to 1, is ideal for shipbuilding. This we know today. The Navy, the U.S. Navy, has adopted this ratio as the absolute best standard to have a, a ship or a barge that will stay afloat. It has been shown that the Ark would have been practically impossible to capsize, given its dimensions. And it would have been reasonably comfortable even during violent waves and winds. It's amazing. Uh, my wife and I love to cruise. We just recently took a cruise up to New England uh, back in September. And uh, the cruise ships today are kind of like people barges. Uh, the way they're built, uh, they're, they're stabilized. Even in a rough storm, for the most part, uh, you don't really feel it all that much. But it's amazing. It's essentially a skyscraper floating on the water. I mean, there are hotels on the water. And we had 20 decks on our ship and there were over 4,000 passengers and 1,600 crew. Just take that in. Very large ship. Largest ship we had been on. So, you know, if a, if a ship or a barge is built properly, it is seaworthy. And we see that the ark checks all of the boxes. And isn't it interesting that we're given all that detail? Now, it's also large enough to sustain all of its intended passengers. One of the problems that people have with the ark and the flood is they assume that the ark looks something like those little pictures you'll sometimes see in a nursery where there's not even enough room for the giraffe and so his head has to stick out of the top. You know, there's a hippopotamus sticking out the back and the giraffe's head is off out of the top and then somehow they survived the 150 days. And You know, li li listen, the problem with that is it looks rather cute, but it's not true. Let me share some things with you. There was approximately 1.4 million cubic feet of storage space, or what equates to 522 cattle cars on the ark. The ark could have carried as many as 125,000 sheep-sized animals. Did you hear that? 125,000 sheep-sized animals. And by the way, there are not more than 25,000 known species of land animals living or extinct. So you get an understanding here. The average size of such animals is certainly much, much less than that of a sheep. Most animals are very small. By comparison, all of the animals could easily fit in less than half the capacity of the ark. So I caution you to think that this is a, not to think that this is a fairy tale. Do not think that for a minute. The figures bear out that this was a very practical way to save not only eight souls, Noah and his family, but all of the land-based animals. The remainder of the space would have been pro to provide sufficient space for food and water storage. 
And water could have been stored in roof cisterns. They certainly had plenty of water to, to, to receive from rain and, and the other uh, cataclysms that were going on regarding water. Uh, water could have been stored in roof cisterns, piped through the ark, because gravity can push water wherever you want. In fact, when we were on a tender ship, which is a little ship that takes you to land from a cruise ship, uh, I noticed these are also their lifeboats, okay, so they can fit in it lot of people on this thing, but they didn't fill it up all that much. But I noticed, I looked up as I was sitting there on this, this tender going into Newport, uh, I, I looked and I said, wow, what's that? And I noticed they had a roof cistern. And the water that would gather there in a storm, I saw the piping, I saw the plumbing coming down from the roof, and water can be gathered and stored even on a little lifeboat like that very easily. So it doesn't surprise me, wouldn't surprise me that they would have built it this way. Uh, this would have provided fluid pressure for various other uses. So running water, that's the point I'm trying to make. Pretty interesting, right? God informed Noah that he was going to flood the entire earth. This, a global event. Some people like to think of it as a localized event. One of the stupidest movies I've ever seen in my life was Evan Almighty. I, I don't even want to comment. Don't watch it. What would be the point of a local flood? They happen all the time. This had to be a global event. Look at verse 17. I am going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens, every creature that has the breath of life in it. So all life, but those that breathe air. Okay, so this, obviously, whales, dolphins, sea life was unaffected. That, that much is clear. Everything on earth will perish, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. You are to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep alive with you. Two of every kind of bird, of every kind of animal, and every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to you to be kept alive, and you are to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and store it away as food for you and for them. And Noah did everything just as God commanded him. So I know many people read this, think of it as a fairy tale. Sadly, in many churches, we teach our kids this as a fairy tale. And yet, it is scientifically provable. It is something that makes perfect sense as God explains it, or as he inspired the sons of Noah to explain it to us in his word. So God informed Noah, he's going to flood the entire earth. The springs of the great deep would burst forth. So all of the groundwater comes forth from, from the earth. All right? In addition to that, the floodgates of the heavens would open up. And listen, there is substantial geological evidence supporting a worldwide flood. It makes perfect sense based on the evidence. But people just don't want to believe it. And as a result, they come up with other theories. Now, this is really interesting. I read an article this week. Uh, I saw uh, a picture of a dinosaur, and they were talking about dinosaurs may still exist. I'm like, okay, what, what is this all about? I thought they were extinct on the earth, on other planets. <laughs> who would, I didn't read it, would have been a waste of my time, but who would write it? Hey, this is, they'll believe that dinosaurs can exist on other planets, but a perfectly logical, scientifically provable explanation of the ark, that's a problem. Uh, you know, I don't know. God promised Noah that he would save him and his entire family and instructed Noah to preserve a sample from the animal kingdom. So all this water coming from the heavens, from the ground, 
uh, it's going to bring destruction. It's going to change the surface of the earth. So he needs a sample from every animal, from the animal kingdom. And the Lord would send two of each kind of land animal to enter the ark. By the way, this would require only the species, all right? Not the individual subspecies. Genetic variations are what create different subspecies from the same species. So you didn't need to have, let's say, a collie and a bulldog and a pug. You just needed two canines. That's what I guess I'm trying to say. Noah was responsible to store the necessary food for them, and he lived and worked in obedience to God for an entire century. A hundred years, they lived very long lifespans, in order to create or build this box, this ark, if you will. So let's understand something. This is a reasonable explanation. This is not far-fetched. This makes perfect sense. You can believe it didn't happen, but you can't say that as it's explained, it doesn't make sense or is in some way incapable of saving Noah and all of the animals. I gave you all the figures. We'll move on. So God called Noah and his family to enter the ark. And so we begin in chapter 7, and it says, and we'll look just verse 1. The Lord then said to Noah, go into the ark, you and your whole family, because I have found you righteous in this generation. Now there we speak to that idea of being made righteous by God because of our faith in God. And that's how we're made righteous. I shared this in the beginning. I want you to understand this. If you're righteous today, it's not your righteousness. It's Christ's righteousness imputed to you. You are made righteous because of your faith in him. Can I hear an amen? That's how we're made righteous. Isaiah told us very graphically that our righteousness is as filthy rags. But his righteousness is likened to white garments, linen, clean white garments. So understand That is a picture. It describes our righteousness in Christ. God chose to show his grace to Noah and his family. You know, Noah was found righteous before God, as I said, by faith. And you might be thinking, well, where did you come up with that, Pastor Tim? Well, I'm going to share with you in Hebrews 11, verse 7, that by faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. So Noah was righteous by faith. He believed in the unseen flood. It takes faith to believe in something that you can't see. It does. He was accepted by God. He was spared judgment because of his faith. His obedience enabled him and his family to be preserved through the flood. But his faith is why he was made righteous. So you see, faith brings obedience. There's an obedience that comes by faith, Paul says in Romans. And so if you have faith, you're going to obey God. Your obedience doesn't bring faith. Your faith brings obedience to God. And that's true for Noah. He walked with God. He was accepted by God as righteous, we were told in the scriptures. Faith empowered him to preach a message of God's judgment to a sinful world. His words pointed out their failure to obey God and his good example exposed their worldly wickedness. And this is why the world hates us. Godly people are hated in the world because our words point out their failure to obey God, their rejection of God. So the reason we're so despised is because the things we say identify them as sinners. 
But more importantly, they really hate us because of our example, our lifestyle. Our good example exposes their worldly wickedness. Just like Cain was angry because Abel was righteous and he wasn't, the world looks at Christians today, and to some extent Jews as well, to some extent. Not because they're righteous in Christ, but because they they seek to, to be righteous according to the law, let's say according to God's word. Now, of course, that's impossible because apart from Christ, we are not righteous. But still, when there's a people on the earth who want to live right and uprightly before God, the wicked world hates them. So why is there anti-Semitism in the world? Why is there anti-Christian bias in our culture? Why does that exist? Very simple answer. It obviously doesn't make any sense. But it comes down to wickedness in the heart of people who hate God and therefore hate his people. Now, if they really didn't in their heart of hearts believe what we were saying, they wouldn't care. But deep down inside, every man has that God-shaped void in their hearts. And so when they hear of us living uprightly and living according to God's word, they get angry. They don't want to hear it. So it's easier to destroy us than it is to listen to the voice of God through both our words and our example. So... If the world hates you for his sake, kind of points to the truth that you belong to him. Is this not true? Certainly Jesus told us these things in advance. So Noah had faith. Faith also empowered him to receive God's righteousness by faith. So faith is the issue at hand here. Faith in God. He and his immediate family were saved by God's grace because of their faith in him. And God called Noah to take certain animals with him on the ark. Notice in verses 2 through 3 of chapter 7, we read, Take with you seven of every kind of clean animal, a male and its mate, and two of every kind of unclean animal, a male and its mate, and also seven of every kind of bird, male and female, to keep their various kinds alive throughout the earth. You probably didn't know that, that it wasn't just two of any and every animal. It was more than that, and this is the reason. These were the animals that God called Noah to bring with him, seven pairs of every kind of clean animal and of every kind of bird. Now, these were the animals suitable for domestication. They were also used for sacrificial offerings, so you needed to take a few more than two. Would you agree? The multiple pairs allowed for a wider variation in breeding as well. This was God's intention because man lived by domesticating certain animals, which are meant to be domesticated, not wild animals. I I wish more people would realize this. It's probably not a good idea to uh, have a tiger in your backyard or an ape living in your basement. Although how many times have I read stories, you've seen them on the news, where suddenly an ape goes ape. Or a lion or a tiger or a bear, oh my, decides to take out the entire neighborhood. Well, listen, why does that happen? They're wild animals. God did not create them to be domesticated. But I can't remember the last time a sheep decided to take out a whole town. Or a cow. I don't think that's ever happened. Goats can be a little nasty. But for the most part, domesticated animals are pretty tame. And so they took a lot of them for good reason. 
But he was to take one pair of every kind of unclean animal so that those animals wouldn't become extinct. Sadly, since then, many animals have become extinct. But God was about to bring his perfect judgment on the earth and upon all mankind. Look at verse 4. He says, seven days from now I will send rain on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. Remember, it hadn't rained yet. They didn't even know what rain was. For 40 days and 40 nights, and I will wipe from the face of the earth every living creature I have made. Now God, about to bring his perfect judgment on the earth and upon all mankind. And you're probably thinking like I think, well, that doesn't seem very fair for the animals, does it? They didn't do anything. Uh, That may be true, but God's judgment is perfect, and he chose to do it this way. By the way, seven is the number of perfection or completion. Forty is the number of judgment in the Bible. So you have perfect judgment, if you interpret it that way. Seven, forty, perfect judgment. And mankind has been measuring time in seven-day weeks since the creation week, because that is how God has given us the the, uh, breakdown of a week. By the way, if you look at a year which in the beginning was 360 days, a month was about 30. So uh, that's something that's perceived astronomically. A solar calendar, uh, the monthly calendar follows the moon, the sun, the annual calendar, the rotation of the earth day and night. But why seven days a week? Uh, That doesn't fit nicely into the calculations of a month or a year. Why seven days? Why is that? Well, that's because when God created the heavens and the earth, he created in six days and rested on the seventh, and that became a pattern for us to follow. And mankind has followed it even to this day, even in some of the most ungodly places on earth, we have a seven-day week. The names of the days of the week are are, are in many different cultures called different things, but we all have seven-day weeks for a reason. Because since the beginning of time, that is how we've counted time. That's how we've apportioned our work week. That is simply a testimony to creation as recorded in the book of Genesis chapter 1. So as we look at this, we realize the flood would begin in seven days and last for 40 days and nights. By the way, worldwide rain lasting 40 days would be impossible under the present conditions we live in. That could never happen given the way our world is today. It kind of felt like every weekend we had a rain, right? We had a rainstorm every weekend this summer. It seemed like every Saturday. I know a lot of the kids' games were canceled and stuff going into the fall. There's a lot of rain. But I don't know that we have ever had 40 days of rain. And, of course, that would be impossible. And, And it's important to remember things were different before the flood. In fact, we're told in Genesis 1 that there was a water vapor canopy over the earth And the condensation of the water vapor canopy is the only explanation for the floodgates of the heavens opening up and 40 days of rain, 40 days and nights. So again, going back to the testimony of the book of Genesis, a scientific explanation. Much of the lush vegetation of the pre-flood world would be uprooted and transported in a flood like this, in a cataclysm. It would become buried in great sedimentary beds throughout the earth, And many of these beds would eventually become the world's coal beds. So that begins to explain the natural resources that are buried within the earth. We're told that it would take millions and millions of years for this to happen. I actually have watched documentaries where it can be, through heat and pressure, coal beds can be created very rapidly. But the narrative doesn't fit into the atheist 
manifesto. And so they have to change things to help us to see in some way that God is a myth and his word is a lie. Of course, his word remains forever. Amen? Now, God brought all the animals to Noah within the next seven days. Look at verses 5 through 10. You're thinking, oh, how could God do that? God can do anything. If God could talk to you, he can talk to an animal, right? All right. So look at this. And Noah, it says, and Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. Uh, Verse uh, 6, Noah was 600 years old when the floodwaters came on the earth. And uh, it says, uh, Noah, 600 years when the floodwaters came on the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives entered the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Pairs of clean and unclean animals, birds and all creatures that move along the ground, male and female, came to Noah and entered the ark as God had commanded Noah. And afterward, or after, the seven days, the floodwaters came on the earth. So they actually moved into the ark seven days ahead of time, before the flood, which makes sense. So he and his family entered the ark to escape the floodwaters that had not yet come, that they believed by faith would come. And God sent the pairs of clean and unclean animals and birds to enter the ark. So I think it's important to remember that we serve a good God who looks to protect us from his judgment if we put our faith in him. The ark is a picture of that truth. That's the most important message this morning. Not the details that you probably learned in Sunday school. What's most important is that God provided a way where there was no way to survive his judgment and be spared by his grace. God has provided a way where there was no way. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by him. He is the ark, if you will, that spares us the judgment of God for all eternity. Amen? So God destroyed the entire earth with a flood. You may not like that explanation. You may not believe that explanation. But that's what the word of God tells us in a very cogent, logical, even scientifically provable way. Look at verses 11 through 12. In the sixth hundred, uh, excuse me, in the six hundredth year of Noah's life, On the seventeenth day of the second month, on that day, all the springs of the great deep burst forth, and the floodgates of the heavens were opened, and rain fell on the earth forty days and forty nights. Now, notice, that's three things. Water is coming from three sources, if you will. First, you have the springs of the great deep burst forth. That's all of the underground aquifers at that time burst forth so you have all this water coming up from the ground then you have what it says the floodgates of the heavens were open that's that water canopy layer that god created the firmament if you will that was around the earth when the earth was first created that is no longer in existence all of that water vapor layer, uh, layer condenses and all of that water comes down and then rain also begins to fall on the earth as a result of the climate change. Yeah, the climate changes. The climate changed and everything got destroyed. This could have been an existential threat. The climate change is talked about today is a few degrees one way or the other. Mankind survived this because of God's grace. I believe mankind will survive whatever perceived climate change may or may not happen in our lifetime. Would you agree with that statement? I put my faith in God. I certainly don't put my faith in government or global government that wants to spend all of our money. Well, an existential threat. 
Well, it, this was an existential threat. And we're told there that all these things happened, and as a result, the earth was flooded. Okay, so I read 11 and 12. The floodwaters came exactly when God said and for exactly how long God had determined. The exact date of the flood's onset was recorded. It was the 17th day of the second month. By the way, the ark landed on Mount Ararat Ararat, exactly 150 days or five months later. We'll see that when we get to chapter 8. What's the implication? And you'll see this throughout the Old Testament that the primeval year contained 12 months of 30 days each. Do the math. If you have a 360-day year, which was the Babylonian year before the time of Hezekiah, uh, the years were recorded as 360-day years. Uh, and then that makes sense. There's 12 months of 30 days. They counted that, and that's why you have 360 degrees in a circle. Uh, all of these are Babylonian systems, number systems, but they're based on perceived astronomical events. So we begin to see the world is very different than it is today. Enough said about that. Uh, as we look at the information we're given here, Noah and his family, as well as all of the animals that God had sent, were saved from the flood. Look at verse 13. On that very day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, together with his wife and the wives of his three sons, entered the ark. They had with them every wild animal according to its kind, all livestock according to their kinds, every creature that moves along the ground according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, everything with wings. Pairs of all creatures that have the breath of life in them came to Noah and entered the ark. Uh, the animals were going. Uh, the animals going in were male and female, of every living thing, as God had commanded Noah. And then the Lord shut him in. I like that. Then the Lord shut him in. So who closed the door? The Lord. The Lord shut him in. Has the Lord shut you in? Are you safe and secure in His everlasting arms? Because this is a beautiful picture of salvation in Christ. I think you need to see that. Looking at this, this truth is that the animals that were included, that were spared, even included those that have since become extinct. So when your children ask, what happened to the dinosaurs? Because they always do. What is it about kids and dinosaurs? I had a book on dinosaurs when I was little. I think a lot of boys, even girls do. There's something about dinosaurs. We're just fascinated. I had those little plastic ones too. I'm sure many of you did. Uh, so we're fascinated with dinosaurs. So we tend to have that conversation a lot with our children. But understand, this included animals that have since become extinct. So yes, dinosaurs were represented, that is reptiles, lizards, those that can't live in the water. Uh, but they've become extinct in the millennia following the flood. Many animals have become extinct. In fact, many animals have become extinct even in your lifetime, sadly. And that's the downward trend of our environment and the way things are. By the way, they were all young animals. You didn't need a fully grown Jurassic Park Tyrannosaurus Rex to save that dinosaur species. Uh, they were all young animals. Now, it's also possible that some of these animals went extinct before the flood, but I think it's more likely. Because they're buried, their bones are buried, and the fossils are in the cataclysm that we call the worldwide global event, a flood, uh, it's more likely that, yes, they didn't have to be big. They could have been very small. And most of these lizards and reptiles are very small. 
when they're first hatched or born, if you will. So they were all young animals, all of the animals, even like things like elephants and rhinoceros. and they, These things would have been the smaller animals uh, than the fully grown animals. Uh, they would have to spend a year in, in the ark without reproducing. So you didn't want fully grown, mature animals anyway. Most would hibernate, many animals can, uh, during this time, and then emerge to repopulate the earth after the flood. I know what some of you are thinking. Well, Pastor Tim, I, I thought he was like a guy of science. I thought, you know, he, he, I thought he was intelligent. How could he believe this? I'm giving you an intelligent explanation that's scientifically provable, but I'm basing it on the word of God. I'm not basing it on what I think is true. I'm telling you what God said, and I'm looking at it retrospectively and saying, well, this could work. And if it could work and God said it happened, why would I doubt it? Except if I'm trying to be morally unaccountable to God's word, there's no good reason not to trust God's word. Amen? Okay. And then the Lord shut them all in and protected them from the coming judgment. This, again, a beautiful picture of salvation through Jesus Christ. It's also a wonderful picture of the rapture of the church. Because if one day will come before God's judgment is poured out on the earth, at some point the church will be gathered according to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We will be gathered, the dead in Christ will rise first, and we who are alive will be caught up in the air and will forever be with the Lord. We're told to encourage one another, and I'm encouraging you with these words. So just like the ark, just like they were shut in the ark, one day we will be shut into God's presence because the earth will be judged and we will not be judged with it. So this great cataclysmic event destroyed the antediluvian or pre-flood world and forever changed the earth. Look at verses 17 through 24. For 40 days, the flood kept coming on the earth. And as the waters increased, they lifted the ark high above the earth. The waters rose and increased greatly on the earth. And the ark floated on the surface of the water. They rose greatly on the earth. And all the high mountains were under the entire uh, high mountains under the entire heavens were covered. The waters rose and covered the mountains to a depth of more than 20 feet. Every living thing that moved on the earth perished. Birds, livestock, wild animals, and all the creatures that swarm over the earth and all mankind. How did the mosquitoes make it? I don't know. No, I just... well, that's another conversation. Insects, different conversation. I kind of wish they hadn't made it, but Flies, it would have been okay with flies not making it either, but somehow they always survive. So everything on dry land, notice the creatures that swarm over the earth and all mankind perished. Everything on dry land that has the breath of life in its nostrils died. Every living thing on the face of the earth has, was wiped out. Men and animals and creatures that move along the ground and the birds of the air were wiped from the earth. Only Noah was left and those with him in the ark and the waters flooded the earth for 150 days. Okay, so we make it through the flood account with some things to think about. It's important to recognize that this great cataclysmic event destroyed the world and changed it forever. The rocks of the earth's crust now contain the fossil remains of billions of plants and animals. How did that happen all at once? Oh, must have been aliens or a meteor. Or it's possible that it was the flood. Of course, that's God's explanation, and I'm going to go with his explanation in his word. They were buried in water-transported sediments, which quickly became stone. 
The geologic column is imagined by some to record a three billion year history, but it actually represents the deposits of the cataclysmic flood. If you allow for a flood, it all begins to make sense. And it is interesting that few fossilized men and flying birds are found in the rocks. Now, why is that? Well, this is due to their high mobility and their ability to escape burial in sediments. Birds can fly, men can swim, So when they finally drowned, because they ultimately did, their bodies would decay on the surface of the water and not be buried in the sediment layers of the earth. One other thing to think about, and this is more of a sociological or anthropological uh, proof text, flood stories have been handed down in many languages from most parts of the world. The Babylonian accounts, which are among the oldest, again, not perfect, but Interesting, the Babylonian accounts have considerable similarity with the biblical account, as you would expect. The flood in in the Babylonian account was a divine judgment on human sin and transgression. Man is warned by a god to build a ship and to take into it his friends and family. This is in the Babylonian flood myth. And it's a myth because it's not the actual account, but it's based on the actual account. He is also told to take all different kinds of animals with the necessary food. He builds an immense ship, which is later stranded in Armenia, which is where Ararat is found in the area. He afterwards sends out birds, which didn't return after the third time. He then came out of the ship, built an altar, and sacrificed on it. Sound familiar? It should. It parallels the flood account in the Bible. Now, this is because these accounts reflect actual memories of an actual event. The Egyptians, the Greeks, the Hindus, the Chinese, English Druids, they all have flood myths. Polynesians, Mexicans, Peruvians, and American Indians do as well. Some of these myths have a boat, doves, and even eight family members. How is that possible? Unless it's based on the truth of God's word. Oh, these accounts are crude by comparison, but they still testify to the truth of the flood. But remember, Jesus compared his coming to the days of Noah and considered the flood history. So the most important thing is if you don't believe the flood is history, you're in conflict with Jesus who did. What else do I have to say? Except one last thing, as I ask the worship team to come up. And that is, in describing the last days and the wickedness of mankind that will exist in the last days, we're told by Peter in 2 Peter 3, verse 3, first of all, he says, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come scoffing and following their own evil desires. Check. They will say, where is this coming he promised? Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. Check. But they deliberately forget. Notice, deliberately forget. That long ago, by God's word, the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also, the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, The present heavens and earth are reserved for fire or destruction, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. 
With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises. Some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your history that you've conveyed to us through eyewitnesses. And those that recorded it, they didn't doubt it because they lived it. And far be it from us to be the scoffers who would scoff and mock and deliberately forget the truth. So here we are as Christians who believe in your word, who trust your word, and most importantly, trust that your son said this was so. So for any one of us to doubt this account or any other account in the Bible is really, it's a rejection of you. It's a rejection of your word. It's defiance to your truth. May we not listen to the voices of the world. May we rather follow you and believe your word. May we put our faith in the only thing in the world that records the truth for us, your word. Heaven and earth will pass away. We're told that there by Peter, but we're also told that your word will never pass away. And your word tells us that the ark, the true ark for us, of which the ark is a type, is that you came and died on a cross for our sins and rose again on the third day to give us newness of life, send it into heaven. You make intercession on our behalf. You ever live to do that, to intercede on our behalf. But you are coming again to judge the living and the dead, but we're alive in you and we will never be judged. At least our sins will never be judged because you were judged for our sins. Well, Lord God, this truth means that we need to put our faith like Noah to put our faith in the unseen, to put our faith in the things we can't prove but make perfect sense, to put our faith in you that we might be made righteous and blameless in Jesus Christ by faith, that we might be preachers of righteousness in a wicked age, knowing that the only thing that stands between us and your judgment is your grace, a grace that we share with a world that would reject it, but we share it nonetheless. May every heart here come to know you by your grace. And repent that they may be spared and never perish. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.